Well, I don't know what you feel when you watch that video. I can imagine there are at least some of you who feel what I feel. It's the, to me, that watching that video, it's like breathing in a deep breath of fresh spiritual air. It's so it's inspiring and motivating, and it makes me feel like what it means to live in a relationship with God can actually be something other than everything that we mean by the word religion in all of its ugliness. The religiousness that creates wars and judges people who are sinful, the religiousness that creates this facade of neatness that masks the the rotting corpse of ugliness you know underneath and just this idea that Jesus came to do away with all of that I just find so life-giving and I know that others uh, in our community too as well because a whole bunch of you have sent us the link to that video in the last little while and said please show this in church one Sunday so for all of you Check, we did it, because it's awesome. I, I mean, the fact that it's got 26 million views on YouTube, but what to me was more powerful than just the number of views was reading some of the comments beneath. And once you got rid of the trolls and that kind of stuff, reading people say, listen, I'm still an atheist, but I keep watching. And this gives me hope. And I think that's the word. It's a video that gives hope of the freedom that could be a part of what it means to live in a relationship with God. For what it means for Jefferson Bethke to stand up and say, what if I told you that Jesus came to abolish religion? Frankly, my only problem with the video is that when I turn to the Bible, to the actual words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it doesn't actually appear that that's why Jesus came at all. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, at the beginning of the body of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish religion, to abolish the law or the prophets, the codification of the Jewish religion, all of the institutionalizing and organizing of the Jewish religion life, religious life with all of its rituals and rules and regulations. Jesus says, don't think that I came away, I came to do away with religion. I didn't come to abolish religion. In fact, Jesus goes way beyond that. And instead of just saying, hey, I didn't come to do away with this thing. In, in verse 18, the very next verse, he goes even further. He says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter and not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. When Jesus says the, the smallest Letter. He's referring to the Hebrew letter Yod. It's the equivalent of the English letter Y. I took a picture of a part of the Hebrew law this week. Uh, I'll put it up on the screen here. The um, Hebrew letter Yod is the, the first letter of that second word, 
which actually kills me to say because it's the last letter of the first word because the Jewish Bible gets read from right to left. But that's neither here nor there. It is the, it's the first letter of the second word. It kind of looks like a stunted seven or maybe an overinflated apostrophe. It's barely the size of a piece of punctuation. It's the smallest letter in the Jewish law. When Jesus says not the least stroke of a pen, he's talking about some of those little embellishments that allow you to tell the difference between letters that look very similar to each other. In that first word, there are three letters that are each distinct letters of the Hebrew alphabet, that, but that almost look exactly the same. In fact, the only way to tell the difference between the, the first letter, the Dalit, and the second letter, the Het, is by this little foot on the left-hand side, they both look like houses, but one's got this little foot on the left-hand side and a little kind of squiggle where the wall meets the roof. And those are the only differences between that letter and the one that sits right beside it. And the, that letter, the het and the hay, which is at the end of the word, the other house, they're exactly the same, except the hay's got a little window right there by the roof. The only difference is that tiny little bit of ink that it takes to fill in that line. Those are the kinds of differences that Jesus means when he says not the, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. Jesus is saying, when you read the scriptures, not the dot on an I or a cross on a T or a comma or an apostrophe in the entire Bible, not a single command or demand will pass away until the universe implodes and the earth is destroyed. Jesus says, I want you, when you read the scriptures, I want you to read them as though they all matter for all time down to the tiniest detail. The tiniest detail of the least significant command. In verse 19, Jesus says, therefore, so because this is true, because I didn't come to abolish religion, and because all of the law and all of the religious commands and demands remain in effect until the universe implodes, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, so here's the bottom line. He says, anyone who disregards or lowers the bar or gets re who relaxes the requirement of even the least of the commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The, the least of the commands, according to Rabbi Abba ben Kahana, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 22. He says, if you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young for food or for breeding or whatever, but be sure to let the mother go, that it will go well with you and you may have a long life. Rabbi Abba ben Kahana says there is no command less significant than that one. And Jesus says that anyone who lives with less than a total commitment to wholehearted religious obedience to the tiniest detail in the least significant law will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
You'll be the least significant, least important person in the kingdom of heaven. You'll be the one that everyone looks to and says, that person got it the least. They understood less than anybody else about what it means to live in a relationship with God. Conversely, Jesus says, if you obey the commands to the tiniest detail of the least significant law and you encourage and inspire and hold other people accountable to do the same, he says you'll be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. At the end of the day, however you treat obedience to God as described by the commands and demands of the scriptures, that is how God will treat you. Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish religion I've come to make sure that people realize how important it is that if you want to live in a relationship with God, what that demands is a total, whole life, wholehearted, religious commitment to absolute obedience to the tiniest detail of the least significant religious command. It is total obedience or you're living something less than what it means to follow Jesus. That doesn't sound like Jesus came to abolish religion. But I think the reason that Jesus says it, and not just says it, I think the reason that Jesus makes this a matter of first importance in the Sermon on the Mount, his sermon to describe what a a life with God looks like, the life that God blesses, the reason Jesus starts here is because he knows our hearts. He knows that there are people in his crowd and there are people in our crowds, including me, whose temptation is to minimize the importance of wholehearted religious obedience to God. I mean, we've got all of our rationale. We've got all of our reasons, right? Why, why I don't have to do everything the Bible commands me to do. I mean, I know that the Bible commands me to forgive certain people, but if only you knew how much they'd hurt me, you'd understand why I'm not going to forgive them. I know what the Bible says about what it looks like to to be obedient to God with my sexuality, some people think, but come on, it's the 21st century. Get with the times. Um, I know... Some people think the Bible says I shouldn't do this, but God is a God of grace and he'll forgive me after. I had a friend who told me that his Catholic buddies would sometimes pre-confess their weekend sins on Friday afternoon so that they could go into the weekend knowing they're already forgiven for the sins that they're about to commit. And I I do that too. Decide ahead of time that God's going to forgive me after. You know, people think, I, I know that the Bible says that I ought to tell the truth, but the truth is just so costly. If I own all of my income on my income tax form, I'm going to lose a lot of money. Or if I am totally upfront about this, I'm not going to get that job. Or if I'm, if, if, if. I know the Bible says honesty, but it's just, the cost is too high. So I'm going to shave the truth just a little bit. And what we do is we tailor the requirements, the commands and the demands of scriptures. We, we take a little bit in here and we let a little bit out there until they fit comfortably. Until they fit me. They fit my personality. They fit my values. They fit my life. They fit my preferences. They fit uh, my vision of what uh, my life ought to look like. 
in a completely comfortable way. And what we've done is we've taken the commands and the demands of Scripture and we've picked and chosen until we've come up with the combination that we can live with. And I think the reason we do it, the reason we do it is because somehow and for some reason we think that choosing something other than total wholehearted obedience to Scripture is going to give me the life I've always wanted. That somehow life will be better if I don't do exactly what God says. If I don't forgive or whatever the case may be. That somehow we feel like God is like an abusive heavenly father. Or he's, he's this cosmic killjoy. Or he's on this like power trip and he just likes to see people jump. And so he laid down all of these irrelevant arbitrary rules that, are, that in the long run just keep me from enjoying myself. And so we, so we say to ourselves, well, if God really loved me, he'd let me do this. If, if God really loved me, he wouldn't want me to leave my partner. If God really loved me, he wouldn't expect me to stay in this unhappy marriage. If God really loved me, of course he'd want me to have a bigger house. If God really loved me, he'd let me do something that's contrary to what it says in the scriptures. And the truth of the matter is, friends, and we'll never really, really thrive in our relationship with God until we get this, until we trust him enough to believe this. The truth of the matter is that the whole point of the commands and demands of scripture is that God has given them because he loves us for our benefit so that we can experience life the way it was always intended to be experienced. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is just finishing laying out the law in all of its detail. All of the commands and demands of the, of the scriptures. And he says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Moses says, listen, I've laid a lot of commandments in front of you today, but at the end of the day, the core choice in every single instance is this. You will either choose to obey God and experience life or you will choose to disobey God and experience death. You will either choose to obey God and experience the fullness and meaning and satisfaction of a life lived in relationship relationship with him or you will compromise and disobey God and you will live with the pain of the consequences of choosing destructive choices that reject God's vision for your life if not now then someday Moses says listen at the core of what it means to experience an abundant meaningful full life is loving God and listening to his voice, obeying his commands, you do that. And you'll live, really live, and your kids, and for generations to come. That life is found in obeying God. That's why Jesus says, that the life that God blesses is a life that is committed to total unwavering, wholehearted, religious obedience to all of the commands and the demands of Scripture. Now there is a lot of unpacking to do in terms of how we understand 
some of those, especially Old Testament commands and demands that we can't get into this morning. I'm going to post something on the website this week about all of that. But at the end of the day, Jesus' point, for all of us who tend to minimize the demands of Scripture on our life, Jesus says, no, no, the way to experience life is to live in wholehearted religious devotion to being completely obedient to God in the tiniest detail of the least significant command in Scripture. Then you will really live. Now, not everyone in Jesus' crowd was the kind of person who wanted to fudge on the, on the commands of Scripture. In fact, there were two groups of people in Jesus' audience, and, and the same groups exist in our community, for sure, who would have been standing in the back shouting loud amens to everything that Jesus was saying. The kind of people who say, you know, the problem with this generation is that they just don't take it seriously enough. They're just not committed enough to being obedient to God. They just don't obey the rules the way we were taught to obey the rules. In Jesus' day, they were called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they agreed with Jesus 100% of the way that the life that God blesses was a life that obeyed the tiniest detail of the least significant laws in exacting precision. And they had given their lives to studying and understanding and defining and teaching and living the commandments of Scripture. All 613 of them which they had identified. But see, the problem for them was that while sometimes it seems like there are a lot of commands in Scripture, at the end of the day, in reality, the truth is there's really not enough. There aren't enough commands in Scripture because the commands that exist in Scripture don't cover every situation and sometimes they're just vague so that you don't really know exactly what obedience looks like in some ways. You know, I'll give you an example. It says in the Bible, you know, keep the Sabbath holy. Well, that makes sense that you'd set aside one day a week to devote yourself to focusing on your life with God and so on. But what does it mean to keep that day holy? Well, they read a little further in the scripture. They said, well, one thing it means is that you don't work on the Sabbath. Well, that makes sense. So you're not distracted with other stuff and so you're able to focus on God. But what constitutes work? Well, they put their heads together, the teachers of the law, and they said, well, we have to lay out what that means. And they came up with no fewer than 39 categories of, of what constituted work. Planting, sowing, reaping, plowing, lighting a fire, extinguishing a fire, carrying a burden, on and on. 39 categories of things saying, okay, this, is, this is work. You can't do any of these things on the Sabbath. Okay, so I can't carry a burden on a Sabbath, but but what constitutes a burden? Well, that's a good question. So they put their heads together again. What would, what would be a burden that would be work? You know, it would be work on the Sabbath. Well, if you're carrying food, no more than a dried fig. If you're carrying wine, no more than a glassful. If you're carrying milk, no more than a mouthful. If you're carrying ink, no more than to write two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And on and on and on the definitions went. And suddenly, the 613 laws became 63 chapters, 800 pages of interpretation of the Jewish law. But now I've got these 800 pages of interpretation. How do I understand this? Well, 800 pages of the Jewish law become 72 commentaries on the interpretations of the Jewish law, which at the end of the day amounts to thousands and thousands and thousands of rules of what it means to live a life that's fully devoted to being obedient to God in the tiniest detail 
of the least significant commandments. These were guys who took obedience to the law seriously and who would have been right in Jesus' corner until Jesus turned the tables on them. And in Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, listen to me. These Pharisees and teachers of the law think that they've figured out what it means to be obedient to God. But if you want to be my follower, and if you want to, if you want to live life in a relationship with God, if you want to live the life that God blesses, you've got to do You've got to go further than them. And people would have been freaking out. Right? Like, how do you go further than 613 commands, 800 pages of interpretation, 72 volumes of commentary, thousands and thousands of rules? And every one of those Pharisees could have stood up in public and said, without fear of contradiction, that they had been entirely blameless in their living out of the law. How do you go further than that? Jesus says the problem with the Pharisees is not that they don't take obedience seriously. He said it's that they don't take it seriously enough. Because their obedience is the kind of obedience of legalistic rule keeping that Jefferson Bethke talked about. It's the kind of obedience that puts up this facade of religious niceness when there's all sorts of garbage and junk going on behind the scenes. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this about them. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Jesus says, you know what the problem is with you Pharisees? You obey these rules legalistically, religiously, with exacting precision. You have this beautiful facade that looks like religious obedience, but if you, if you go behind the facade, your hearts are filled with greed and self-indulgence, with anger and hatred and lust and deception and all sorts of ugliness. There's, there's this darkness, that, that, this dirtiness that lurks in your hearts that you don't care about. The only thing you care about is putting on that religious front that looks squeaky clean. Like uh, Bethke says in the video, you know, I look like the church kid when all the while I'm addicted to pornography. I'm putting on the front, but in behind, there's a lot of darkness and ugliness going on. And Jesus says, honestly, these Pharisees think that they're living out God's hope for their life by putting on this external veneer of legalistic rule keeping. So that's not what God wants. He calls them hypocrites, which is the Greek word for actor. He says, you're just pretending. You're just playing a part. You're putting on a mask for everyone to see your holiness, your righteousness, and in behind it, you're just as sinful as you've ever been. 
Jesus says, if you, if you want to live as a follower of mine, if you want to live the life that God blesses, if you want to experience real life, it takes total, wholehearted religious obedience, but it takes the kind of obedience that comes from the heart. Not legalistic rule-keeping, but inner transformation, which is precisely what Jesus did come to do. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The video is absolutely right. The kind of legalistic, religious, rule-keeping veneer of holiness, that kind of religion, Jesus came to abolish. But not by setting aside the importance of obedience, but by bringing the law to fulfillment. By bringing it, carrying it to its intended um, conclusion. By making it what God always wanted it to be. In, in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is, again, he's winding up his teaching of the law. And he says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. And the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul. And live. Moses says, listen, I put a lot of commandments in front of you. And at the end of the day, what matters is less about whether or not you obey the rule of being circumcised. What matters more is that you let God circumcise your heart. You let him cut away all the ugliness, all the dirtiness, all the sinfulness that resides in the darkest recesses of our heart. You let God cut that away so that, he can, so that you can have a heart that loves him and lives. He says, God doesn't care whether you conform to all the rules. What God wants is a heart that's being transformed. In fact, he says the same thing. Uh, the Old Testament says the same thing in Ezekiel. Where it says, God says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. And I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God says through Ezekiel, listen, the time is coming where I'm going to wash you. And I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to forgive you of all of your sin." And then I'm going to do heart surgery. And I'm going to remove from you that heart of stone, that hard, stubborn, rebellious, sinful heart. And instead I'm going to transplant into you a heart of flesh that is soft and tender and sensitive towards God, that is filled with a love for God and a love for people. I'm going to put my spirit in you to motivate you and empower you to make you able to be the person I created you to be so that you will do the things that I've called you to do. So at the end of the day, this is Jesus' point. You don't need a rule to tell you not to murder somebody if you have a heart that's filled with a love for God and a love for people because that heart is going to be inclined to forgive. You don't need a rule telling you to not sleep with somebody who isn't your spouse if you have a heart filled with love for God and a love for people because that kind of heart is going to be disinclined to the selfishness of lust and it is going to be inclined to respect the dignity of other people instead of objectifying them. 
You don't need a rule to tell you to stay in your marriage because your heart will be inclined to commitment and reconciliation. You don't need a rule to tell you to tell the truth because you will have a heart that prompts you to truth. The Spirit will motivate you and empower you to be a person of truth. Jesus says, this is what I've wanted. The kind of total, complete, unwavering, wholehearted religion, so religious obedience to me in everything that starts from the transformed heart that is filled with the love of God and a love for people and a, and a, a spirit that is filled with my Holy Spirit that motivates and empowers people to live that way into the world. You become that kind of person, Jesus says, and you don't need rules. You have become the fulfillment of the law because Jesus came as the fulfillment of the law. As the Savior who came to rescue all of creation from sin and reconcile it back to God just as the prophets predicted. He came as the fulfillment of prophecy. He came as the teacher who would show us what the life really looked like that God was describing in the Old Testament law so that we would know what it was that God was calling to. He came as the fulfillment of the law. He fulfilled the law in the way that he lived as the perfect example of what a life looks like when filled with the love for God and a love for people and empowered by the strength of the Holy Spirit. He was the fulfillment of God's intention for humanity in the law. And ultimately, Jesus fulfilled the right requirement of a law that demanded an endless cycle of sacrifices for sin by coming to the world and dying on the cross as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices and being raised from the dead so that we could be transformed from the kind of people we are disinclined to obey God or legalistically and zealously rule keeping without a transformed heart so that he could change the kind of people people we are to do heart surgery on us and fill our hearts with a love for God and a love for people that empowered by the Holy Spirit makes religion irrelevant because we don't need rules when you're living beyond them and that's what this series is about about what a life looks like when fully abandoned to that inside-out transformation that only Jesus can bring to a heart. Something that goes beyond um, disobedience and religious rule-keeping. And that's what we're celebrating this morning. As we gather around the Lord's Supper together and remember by eating the bread and drinking the juice the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament hope so that we could be something completely different. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your call to obedience, for your promise of life that comes from a wholehearted devotion to following you. And yet, God, I am thankful that you set us free from the religious rule-keeping requirements of religion, that you don't call us a slave, you call us son, that you don't put us in bondage to religion, you set us free.
free to be changed because of what you have done for us on the cross. Free to be changed in our heart and filled with your spirit to be the people you always envisioned we would be. We come to your table now asking you to renew that work in us to change us from the inside, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.